Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would be exalted as we turn to it, that you would be glorified, and that you would speak to each of us as individuals. And it is in your name that we pray. Amen. So tonight finds us in the book of 2 Samuel. And on Wednesday nights, we're going through the Bible in overview fashion, so one book a week. Um, so far, anyways. Next week, we're going to wind up doing, I think, First and Second Kings. And the week after that, we'll do First and Second Chronicles. And, um, you know, it's important, I just want us to remember as we're doing this, Wednesday nights um, are not the cliff notes for the Bible so that you can say, oh great, I know what the Bible's about, I don't have to read it. No. Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings, but especially Wednesday nights in, in overview fashion, uh, exist so that as you're reading the Bible on your own, as you're going through the Word of God, you have just a little bit of a better game plan and, and overall vision for, oh hey, here's how we're going and hopefully here's how you know, I can better understand here's how it all connects together, right? So don't think of it as um, an excuse to get out of reading the Word. Uh, what happens at church is a great supplement to a personal relationship with the Lord, but it is not a replacement. And so uh, just keep that in mind. And, you know, as a church, we're trying to go through the Bible in a year. And we have, we've got the reading plan in the back. If you don't have one, get one. Start tomorrow on March 10th. And we'll wrap up the book of Deuteronomy, March 11th, we start the book of Joshua. So it'll just, I think it'll help us stay aware, but I don't want us to lose sight of that, right? That Wednesday nights are, uh, they are an extra, and hopefully they're a very helpful extra, but they are supposed to be in addition to what you're reading in the Word yourself. But tonight brings us to the book of 2 Samuel. And we've talked about before, we're now in the history of the nation of Israel. And so the first five books really give us the origins of the nation of Israel and the origins of, um, of the people of Israel as not just uh, a genetic bloodline, but also as a spiritual inheritance and what it means to be Jewish and, and what does the law represent and, and all of that and who, their history up to that point. But starting really at the book of Joshua, we're going to have an uninterrupted chain of Israel's history. And we're going to have that all the way through, um, well, we're going to have the history all the way up until the end of the book of Esther. When we get to Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles go back and sort of recap, just to emphasize a couple of different points, really what First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings have already said. And that's part of why next week and the week after we're probably going to lump those books together. But Second Samuel, we said last week that it was initially, there wasn't a First and Second Samuel, there was the book of Samuel. But when the Bible was translated from Hebrew into Greek, uh, the way the letters are structured, it just took up too much space. And so they split it into two books. And so tonight we find ourselves in the second half of the same story. And, and that's important just to keep in mind because we talked about last week that idea specifically went through the life of Samuel, the life of Saul. But we got to the life of David and we talked about the promises of God for David. And David had all these promises that he had to wait years and, and probably well over a decade to see actualized in his life. But the promises of God were there nonetheless. In 2 Samuel, we get to see some of those come to fruition. So 2 Samuel is going to be the life of David as king. That's really, uh, in, a, in a very tight nutshell, that is what 2 Samuel is. It's the story of David as the king of Israel. 1 Samuel comes up to the point when he becomes king. 2 Samuel pretty much opens up and David's going to become king. Uh, so if you're trying to keep it in your mind, you know, if you're ever trying to reference something uh, in the Bible, okay, was that, you know, was while David was king, then you're talking about 2 Samuel. Um, it's a super 
application-packed book. Second Samuel is, is really not that long. It's 24 chapters, um, and they're pretty short chapters. But it is a just powerful book. It's full of a ton of encouragements, and it's also full of a ton of warnings. And so in that sense, there's just so much relevance for us. But as we're looking at the book from an, in an overview fashion, there's really three very neat little pockets that we can break it into. Uh, we said we're looking at the life of David as the king. So we're going to look at first David's victories. And we get 10 chapters. Uh, chapters 1 through 10, David is just on a victorious roll, and it's beautiful to watch. And, and the Lord is fulfilling his promises to David. The Lord is putting David's enemies under his feet. There's just so much happening, and it's just a beautiful passage of Scripture. And then we get chapter 11 and 12, and that is David's fall. And, you know, a lot of people, as you look back on your life, everybody sort of has, often has, kind of a BCAD moment, right? Where, you know, my life was, was this way up until this point, up until this event or this person that I met or this move that I made, right? And oftentimes, we wind up defining our lives before and after that. And sometimes other people will define our lives based on those, based on what we do. And David has a very distinct uh, point in his life at which everything changes. And really, you could tie it even more specifically to one night's pleasure uh, changes the entire trajectory of David's life. And David's going to fall into sin, and the Lord's going to forgive him, and we'll get to that tonight. But then, really, the rest of the book is David's consequences. Uh, chapters 13 through 24 are going to be the consequences of David's sin. And it's, we're going to, we'll get into it, but there's a, you know, there's a concept, there's a principle that the Lord is more than willing to forgive all of our sins, but there are consequences to any actions we take. So that's the overview form uh, to dive into just the first section, David's victories. First thing that happens is David becomes king. In chapter two, verse one, we see David become uh, the king over the tribe of Judah. And so if you remember, there's the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. And during the time of the judges, uh, they, they, they fragment a little bit into a little more like city-states and there's not a ton of unity. And so Saul's from the tribe of Benjamin. When Saul dies, David's been appointed by the Lord. All the men of Judah say, hey, David's from Judah. We're from Judah. Let's connect the dots. David's the king. Great. Um, the rest of the nation says, I, I don't know about this, right? So, um, so for about seven years, David is king over the tribe of Judah. And then in chapter five, and we, well, and in chapters three and four, we see the Lord bring that process of bringing the rest of the nation into alliance with David. But in chapter 5, verse 1 through 5, uh, it says, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and in. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be a ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron, and then they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. So David becomes king. He achieves the fruition of the promise that God had made to him. God told him when he was probably in the 15 to 16 year old range, you're going to become king. And 15 years later, he did. And it's, it's one of these subtle little things we can gloss over really fast if we're not careful as we're reading through it. But a promise from God does not necessarily equal immediate fulfillment. 
And sometimes we can get disappointed at God and we can get disillusioned. We can have these ideas that God is unfaithful or God isn't keeping his word or he's not meeting his end of the bargain when really, uh, perhaps much more likely, the Lord is allowing us to grow, often through hardship, uh, to prepare us to actually be ready to receive that promise. And so David becomes king in chapter five. In chapter six, one of David's first acts as king is to move the Ark of the Covenant to the city of Jerusalem. Now that he has a capital, now that he has a kingdom, he wants to move the Ark of the Covenant. And Saul, when Saul was king prior to David, never did anything with the Ark. We talked about last week, Saul was a self-reliant man. Saul really didn't feel the need to be dependent upon the Lord. And so the Ark uh, really stayed in one guy's house for 20 years while Saul just did his own thing. But David becomes king, he says, no, we are going to bring the ark into Jerusalem. We have got to have the presence of God uh, in our capital city if we're gonna do anything as a nation. And so he brings it in chapter six. He doesn't actually bring it the right way. Um, the Lord had given very specific instructions. If you're gonna move the ark, here's how you move the ark. And David didn't obey those instructions. We don't know if he just didn't know what they were. We don't know if he didn't care. Um, but he puts the ark on a cart they're transporting it to Jerusalem. One of the guys reaches out to steady the ark because it's uh, about to tip off the cart and the Lord strikes him dead because he's touching the presence of God. And the Lord takes that very seriously. The Lord takes holiness very seriously. And so David says, okay, we gotta kind of back up and recalibrate. So he goes back to the word of God. He says, okay, how does God want us to do this? And they then come back a couple months later and, and do it again the right way. And it says, um, as they're bringing up the ark, that they stopped every six paces and sacrificed an ox. I had a friend tell me one time, he said, you know, sometimes when you're serving the Lord, you can be effective or you can be efficient. The first time David put the ark on a cart, he was trying to be very efficient, but it was not very effective. The second time, he's pausing every six steps to offer sacrifice to the Lord. That is horribly inefficient, but it is incredibly effective in serving the Lord. The Lord is incredibly blessed with David's heart right here. And then in chapter 7, and I want us to, to camp out here for a little bit tonight, because I think 7 is, um, it's a very pivotal chapter in 2 Samuel. It's a very pivotal chapter in Israel's history, but also in our history as Christians. So in chapter 7, verse 1, it says, Now it came about when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. David's saying, hey, uh, I'm in a palace and the ark is still in the tabernacle. That doesn't seem right. It's almost, I'm in a fancier building than the ark of the Lord. And so I think we ought to build a temple. And Nathan said, go do all, is in, all that is in your mind for the Lord is with you. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and say to my servant David, thus says the Lord, are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt even to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So Nathan says, hey, that's a great idea. And uh, then the Lord says, actually, that's not a great idea. You spoke a little bit out of turn. Nathan's have been speaking out of turn for a long, long time. Um, and so Nathan has to then go back to David and say, actually, the Lord said, uh, no, you can't build a temple. And the Lord elaborates, he says, David, you're, um, you're a man of violence. You've been a man of war your whole life. I want the temple to be built by a man of peace. You can help prepare the way for it, but you're not gonna build the temple. 
But the Lord goes on, so he's, he's kind of giving David this rundown. And in verse 11, um, kind of about halfway through, it says, the Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. God is super blessed by David's heart to build him a temple. God says, I don't need you to do it, but I am super blessed. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna build you a house. And then verse 12, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me and when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And in accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. God says, David, I am so blessed that I'm gonna build you a house and I'm gonna raise up your son to build me a house. All right? And, and as a result of that, I'm gonna establish your kingdom forever. Now, who's the Lord talking about here? And this is important for us as, as we're, you know, you're trying to read scripture to understand scripture. Scripture is the best commentary on scripture. And there's lots of multi-volume commentaries out there. A lot of them are good. But the best commentary on scripture is scripture itself. So what is this? This is the prophecy from God. But it's also, it's a multi-layered prophecy. And we see this oftentimes when we, when we see prophecies that we can look back on now and we've seen them fulfilled, we realize, oh, there's actually a couple layers to this. It's kind of, you know, when you see things in silhouette and then the lights turn on and all of a sudden you can see the contrast better. So he's talking about Solomon here, David's son Solomon. He says he's going to build me a temple. Uh, when he sins, I'll correct him and my loving kindness won't depart from him. But he's not just talking about Solomon. He's, he's not just talking about Solomon because he says, I'll raise up your descendant after you. Uh, who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. There is not actively a monarch in the nation of Israel. So if it's just about Solomon, then God's word hasn't fully been established because God said, I'm gonna establish a throne forever. And he says, um, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So who's he talking about here? He's talking about Jesus Christ. Even when he says, your son's gonna build me a house, you know, that's really twofold in a lot of ways. Solomon built a house for the Lord. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Solomon built a house for the Lord. Jesus Christ came and really built the house of Christianity. He built the church, okay? So, you know, as we're looking, we're also trying to each time... Each week, as we're in a book of the Bible, we're trying to say, how, is this, how does this apply to the New Testament? How does this apply to us as Christians? Where are we understanding the picture of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament? Well, right here, God tells David, I'm so blessed that you wanna build me a house. I'm gonna build you a house. And from your descendants is gonna come the man who's going to build the house of God, the real house of God. And it's going to establish forever. Guess what? There's not an actual monarch in the nation of Israel today, but there's an actual monarch over the nation of Israel today, right? There's a king seated on the throne. His name is Jesus Christ. And we cannot lose sight of that. But, but that's, where, that's where the Lord comes back to David after David says, hey, I wanna build a house. And you hear all that and that sounds great, but bear in mind, what did the Lord just tell David? He told him, no. 
David said, I want to build the Lord a house. And the Lord very graciously said, no. The answer is, no, you are not going to build me a house. And David then responds. We get to see David's response starting in verse 18. And it's going to go all the way uh, through verse 29. And I think it's significant enough that I want us to read it. Because oftentimes we will get a no from the Lord when we pray for something. When we ask the Lord for something, it is not uncommon for the Lord to not grant us that request. And sometimes that's no because this is bad for you. Sometimes it's no because you're not ready for it. Sometimes it's no because I have a better plan for you. Sometimes it's just no because you, have, you are stupid enough to actually think that that's what you need and that is not what you need. So the Lord tells David no and David's response is what we should be striving for when we have a response like this from the Lord. Then David the king went in and sat before the Lord and he said, who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you've brought me this far? And yet this was insignificant in your eyes, O Lord God, for you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future. And this is the custom of man, O Lord God. Again, what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. For the sake of your word and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness to let your servant know. For this reason you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you. And there is no God beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears. And what one nation on the earth is like your people Israel, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people and to make a name for himself and to do great things for you and awesome things for your land before your people, whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, from nations and their gods. For you have established for yourself, your people Israel, as your own people forever. And you, O Lord, have become their God. Now, therefore, O Lord God, the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and his house, confirm it forever and do as you have spoken, that your name may be magnified forever. By saying, the Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And may the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made a revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Now, O Lord, you are God, and your words are truth, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing, may the house of your servant be blessed forever. Where's the emphasis in that passage? Where's it directed? It is all upward. David, do you know how many times David says the word you in that? A lot more than he says the word I. David is not focused on, hey, I had this plan, God. I wanted to do this thing. I wanted to serve you. God, this is so not fair. I had ideas and dreams and visions. I had hopes. David says, wow, God, you have stooped down low enough to actually bring me this far. And if that wasn't enough, you stooped down low enough to actually tell me the future, to offer me a promise concerning my future descendants. So I know that you're not doing this because I'm great. You're doing this because of your word. You're doing this because you are faithful, because you are God. David is putting all the emphasis back on the Lord. David is not focusing on himself. When the Lord gives you an answer, whether it's a yes or a no or a not right now, our response should always be, like David's is right here, to put it all back on the Lord, put the focus on the Lord, put the gratitude on the Lord, to remember not just what he's done, but what he's promised to do, to remember his faithfulness in the past and remind ourselves that he will be faithful in the future. That's what David's coming at to a no answer. And I, I know I'm harping on this a lot, but honestly, so often uh, I know for myself and I know for, I'm pretty sure a lot of us, when we get a no, our response is to 
self-focused and that's not fair. I wanted that. Life isn't fair. But the appropriate response is to remember who God is, who God really is, what he's really done for us and what our proper response should be. So that's David's response to the Lord. Chapters 8, 9, and 10, again, we're in the section of David's victories. There's just more victories. We get to see David conquer more people um, until really there's, there's peace all around. Um, or peace almost all around. And then chapter 11, we hit a very distinct turning point in the book. And we're going to shift into David's fall. And it starts off in chapter 11. Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her. And when she came with him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived and she sent and told David and said, I'm pregnant. So this is a pretty significant sin. Okay, David has an affair with a married woman. He's going to go on um, and he's going to wind up murdering her husband to cover up for what he does. But you know, the scripture gives, whenever the scripture gives us a story like this, it's giving it to us so we can learn from it. It's giving it to us as a warning. And there's a lot, I mean, we could spend, and people have, uh, better teachers than I have, spent, you know, a couple of weeks on these next couple of chapters, going through and unpacking all the lessons that are here for us. But I was listening to a guy this week, and he made the point, when exactly did David start sinning right here? Okay, so it says, you know, when the kings went out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him, and David stayed home. Was that a sin? Well, not necessarily, right? I mean, we're not sure how old he was. He might have been getting a little slow. Was it a sin to not go out to war when it was time to go to war? Maybe, maybe not. And when evening came, David arose from his bed. Is it a crime to rise from your bed? No. Uh, it's, he's getting out of bed at evening. That probably means he was in bed most of the day. So he slept in late. Is it a crime to sleep in late? No, not necessarily. And he's walking around on the roof. Is that a crime? Is that a sin? No. He sees a woman. Is that a sin? Well, not necessarily. Kind of, maybe. You know, sometimes the first glance comes and, and we live in a world that throws up the first glance all the time, right? I mean, uh, we live in a world that's always throwing images and ideas and concepts at us. And so sometimes you can't help seeing something the first time. We can all do something about the second time, though, right? So David uh, looks, and now he's asking about this gal. So where are we crossing the line now? Well, is, well, is it a sin to ask the name of, a, of an attractive girl? Well, where are we at here? Where are we at here? Um, and then somebody says, and says, oh yeah, this is Bathsheba. She's the wife of Uriah. So at this point, anything David does other than run is an absolute sin. But, but where did he start sinning? Right, what's the, what's the answer? The answer is David was getting just a little close and a little comfortable until the lines got a little blurry and a little gray. And, and that is one of the greatest dangers to any person in Christianity. So 
Where did David stumble? Well, really, if you want to get, if you want to get technical, David probably, if you want to try and peg, you know, like any crime, you try and go back and figure out what, you know, what really happened, right? Well, really, what probably happened is back in 1 Samuel, when David's on the run and David marries his second wife. Because the Lord had prescribed in the law, the Lord said, if you, when you guys get around to having kings, because you will have kings at some point in time, those kings are supposed to do a couple of things. They should have a handwritten copy of my word. They should write it out themselves so they can read it to themselves. They shouldn't multiply wives for themselves. They shouldn't get horses from Egypt and they shouldn't multiply gold for themselves. And David, you know, well, was a multiplication or addition, right? David sort of goes one at a time in the wife department. But by the time we get through David's life, there's at least seven wives and there's at least 10 concubines, which is like girlfriend with none of the perks of an actual wife. Um, there's probably significantly more than that because we find out about the 10 because he leaves the 10 that he didn't care about, which means there's got to be at least 11. Um, probably means there's more like 20 or 30. Um, so really, David started sinning a long, long time before this event with Bathsheba. He started sinning when he stopped really holding the word of God to be fully relevant in this area of his life. David was, was awesome serving the Lord in, in almost every area, in like Every area except for this one. David is a man after God's own heart. David's called the sweet psalmist of Israel. David is really the greatest leader that Israel ever had. But he didn't quite surrender his whole heart to the Lord. And that one little part they didn't surrender grew and consumed and finally overrode his desires and his lust until he gets to this point where he's willing to Keep inquiring, right? Who's that girl? Oh, she's a wife. Therefore, she has a husband. Therefore, anything you do from this point on is wrong. David says, I wonder if we could do this without anybody finding out. And so this happens. This gal gets pregnant. David winds up, he's got to cover things up. So he winds up getting her husband killed in a foreign battle. And then he marries this gal, which is just super, you know, heroic, like, what a way to pay an honor to a fallen hero than to marry his wife, right? David builds this up as a great PR campaign. I mean, David is, he totally gets away with it. Nobody knows what goes on except for one general and except for the Lord. And it says in uh, chapter 11, the last, last verse of the chapter, it says, but the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of of the Lord. David got away with it except for the fact that he couldn't hide it from God. And that's the truth about our sin, right? The truth about our sin is that we, some people will get away with sin for their entire earthly life. The problem is your life does not consist of just your earthly life. There's an eternity after the fact and you cannot hide your sin from the Lord. And so in chapter 12, the Lord comes, he speaks through Nathan the prophet, and he calls David out on it. Nathan says, gives him sort of this parable about, hey, there was this guy who had a bunch of stuff, and his neighbor didn't have a lot of stuff. The rich guy took something from the poor guy. What do you think we should do? David said, we should kill that guy in the name of justice. And Nathan said, you're that guy. You're the guy. God made you king over Israel. God gave you so much. He gave you everything you could have possibly wanted and more. And all you did, and, all, and your way of repaying that was to go kill one of your best soldiers. One of your top, he's in the top 40. You can read the list in, in, towards the end of the book. We get a list of David's mighty men and this guy's one of them. He's one of David's elite seals. All right, You killed that guy after you impregnated his wife and then you married her. 
And the Lord takes that seriously. And David, and here's the interesting thing. David has a major fall. I mean, that's a major fall. But what's David's response? And this is where we said that the book of 2 Samuel has a lot of warnings, but also has a lot of encouragements. David said to Nathan in chapter 12, verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. David does not say, you know, Bathsheba would have taken a bath inside, that would have made life a lot easier. He doesn't say, if Uriah would have done whatever, he doesn't say, you know, he doesn't, David does not pass the blame. David says, I sinned against the Lord. And because of that, Nathan says, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You will not die. Nathan says, the Lord has forgiven you. And then he goes on and says, but there will be consequences. So understand, this is super critical for us. We've got to understand how this applies to our lives. Because David truly repents. When David's called out on it, David does not cover for his sin. He doesn't excuse his sin. He repents of his sin. And the Lord forgives him. When David got to heaven, the Lord did not say, David, you really were pretty awesome except for Bathsheba. The Lord said, David, you are holy and righteous and you are purified. You are glorified now in your new body. Right? The Lord said that to David after all that David did because David repented and the Lord forgave him. Now David's gonna live with the consequences and really the whole rest of the book are the consequences, but we've gotta understand something for our own lives. David commits a pretty big sin, actually a series of pretty big sins. But in the New Testament, Jesus goes back and he clarifies some points of the law. He says, you know, the, he says, really, the law, in essence, was given as graciously as it could be. But let me explain how God really sees things. He said, in the law, it says you shouldn't murder. But I'm going to tell you that if you are angry with a person, God views that as murder. The law says you shouldn't commit adultery. But I'm here to tell you that if you look at a woman with lustful intent, you are committing adultery in the eyes of God. Now, I can read 2 Samuel and say, I've never impregnated a married woman. I've never impregnated a single woman either. I've never murdered a person, right? But according to Jesus Christ, have I ever been angry with somebody? Yes. Have I ever lusted after a woman with lustful desires in my heart? Yes, I have. So in the eyes of God, I am as bad or worse than David. And that's important for us to understand because you can look at this and say, wow, David was such a loser. But in the eyes of God, contrasted with the righteousness of God, Every one of us is this perverted. Here's the flip side. Every one of us can say, I have sinned, and every one of us can hear the Lord say, you're forgiven. Every single one of us can hear that. And we have to understand that. David's forgiven because he repented. Right? David stood before the Lord fully glorified. I can stand before the Lord when I die fully glorified, fully justified and purified. Every single one of us can on the condition that we accept the forgiveness God is offering. So if you, you know, thank God, our entrance into heaven is not based upon our performance. It's not based on our performance even after we've become Christians, right? Praise the Lord. If I was judged just for the sins I've committed while being a Christian, I'm still going to hell. So the only hope we have, the only hope that David had is the righteousness of God to cover his sins. So every one of us has that. And just, you know, when you come to this point in a teaching, you just got to say, if you have not asked the Lord to forgive your sins, you are still this defiled in the Lord's eyes. You are still this vile in the eyes of God 
if you have not asked for forgiveness. So your sins can be completely forgiven, but you need to ask the Lord to forgive them. And so if you haven't done that, take the opportunity. Do that. Find somebody in this church who's willing to pray with you. And there are a ton of people in the church who are willing to pray with you, right? But do not let that opportunity slip because the Lord gives David this opportunity when Nathan calls out his sin. And I don't know, but the possibility exists that there's somebody here and currently right now, it's my job to call out the sin and say, you're a sinner and you need the forgiveness of God and you need to accept that forgiveness in order to be cleansed. And if you have not received that cleansing, you are still dirty in the eyes of God and you cannot enter in to eternity. You cannot enter into the presence of God. So we take that seriously, right? We are not a church that exists to make people comfortable. We are a church that exists to bring people into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that means confronting sin and dealing with sin so that the Lord can purify you. That's chapter 12. Chapters 13 to 24 are... Uh, really just a long string of consequences. We get to watch David just reap the consequences of his bad decisions, and it's really a tragedy. Um, we get to just watch the Lord tells David, you know what, the, you're going to always have violence in your house. And we see that. David has, um, he's got one son rapes a daughter, and then another son kills that son, and then his other son tries to steal the kingdom and David has to run for his life. And, it, and, and you just see David, it's like he's had his legs cut out from under him. Right? David lives the rest of his life still, he's forgiven by God. He's still saved. David is completely in heaven right now. But it's like he, he lost all of his effectiveness. He lost everything that had sustained him for so long in terms of just the ability to live a functional life. Right? He's forgiven, yes. But there are consequences that run deep in David's family life for the whole rest of the book, right? The whole, I mean, and it's just, it's really, the rest of the book is really a tragedy. And there's like, and then finally it just kind of runs out of the big defeats and just get, runs through the miscellaneous ones, right? Like, oh, and then, you know, this happened and this happened. This guy revolted against the kingdom and this happened and half the tribes kind of revolted and then they came back. And it's like, there's this perpetual state for the rest of David's life of things are just not good. Things are not settled. I don't have rest anymore. So, but we have to read that. We have to understand the context of the consequences of David's sin to appreciate, oh, I can be forgiven, but there are consequences because we want to be encouraged. Yes, you can be forgiven, but we want to be warned. If you're thinking about going down a sinful road, if you're thinking about pursuing something that you know is wrong, don't do it because yes, God can forgive that sin, but there will still be consequences. You will not be able to escape the consequences of your sin. So that's where we find ourselves in the rest of the book. But at the end of the book, and I think this is important because because um, chapter 24 ends on sort of a bummer note, but chapter 22 and 23, the author of, of 2 Samuel goes back. And after he's given us all these defeats, he says in chapter 22, verse 1, And David spoke the words of this song to the Lord, and the day the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So this author says, as we're wrapping up the book, let's go back to one of David's earlier songs. Let's go back to the song that David wrote when he became king, after the Lord had delivered him from all his enemies and from Saul. And so we get this really a, a beautiful, a beautiful song from David. He says, you know, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. 
uh, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my savior. He goes, I mean, and it's, it's 51 verses long. Uh, somewhere else, he's like, as for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tested. He's a shield to all who take refuge in him. David's got this beautiful psalm of praise for the Lord, reminding himself, reminding us of, hey, here's the competency of the Lord. Here's the confidence we have in the Lord. Here's the goodness of God. Here's the faithfulness of God. And it's, I think, as if the author stuck this in to say, hey, remember, David spoke these truths about God. And David made all these mistakes, but these truths didn't change. These are truths that David knew and wrote when he was at his, at his spiritual prime. The truths about God did not change based on David's spiritual fall. And the truths about God don't change based on how good we're doing spiritually. So, our mistakes have consequences. Absolutely. But, our mistakes do not negate the promises of God, and they don't negate the faithfulness of God. And we see this represented again in the New Testament. Paul, um, in 1 Timothy... Chapter 2, verse uh, 11. He says, this is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we died to our sins, if, if we've let him heal us from our sins, we'll live with Christ. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we continue to hold on to the truth of who Christ is through our life, we get to reign with Christ. We were created to reign with Christ. If we deny him, he will also deny us. So is that... You know, that flip side of the reality, if you choose to walk away from the Lord, the Lord will let you. But if you take yourself out from under the forgiveness of God, then you have taken yourself out from under the forgiveness of God. But if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So if we choose to defy God, yes, God will let us walk away. If we stumble, if we're faithless, he's still faithful. The sins of men do not take away from the faithfulness of God. And that is, that's really, that's gospel. That is good news, right? My sins don't take away from who God is. They don't take away from God's holiness, right? And so our salvation, it is dependent upon receiving the promise of God. It's dependent upon receiving the truth, receiving and accepting and really embracing that idea that yes, Jesus Christ came, lived, died, and rose again to pay the price for my sins. There's a blood price for sins and Jesus paid it so I can be forgiven, right? But our salvation is dependent on the faithfulness of God and it is not dependent on our works. That really is the message of 2 Samuel because David is when David goes down as one of the greatest characters in Israel's history. David is, some people, uh, there's different interpretations, but there's prophecies in Ezekiel about during the millennial reign of Christ and talks about a prince. Some people think that's Jesus Christ. Some people think it's actually gonna be David himself coming back to reign with Jesus as king and David as prince. And, and that's a whole other discussion. But David has that place of honor. David is still held up as one of the greatest leaders in all of Israel's history. But David made some big mistakes, right? But God is working in David's life. God's redeeming David's mistakes. There's still consequences, but there's still forgiveness, right? And for each one of us, there are plenty of mistakes, but thank God, there's still forgiveness. There's still the faithfulness and the goodness and the righteousness and the holiness of God. 
to cover our sins, right? That's the story of 2 Samuel. That's the story of the whole scripture. And that's the story of what God is doing in each of our lives. So, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for just your constant faithfulness. We thank you that our salvation is not based on you. It's not based on, uh, I'm sorry, that our, our salvation is not based on us, that it is based on you. It's not based on our intentions or our actions or our deeds, but it is based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. God, that's, a, that's such a beautiful promise. We pray that, that, that our lives would be spent pursuing that truth, unpacking that truth, trying to really understand what all that means, that we would live lives of response to that truth. So I pray that, that as we're going out, that you would fill us up, God, with your spirit, with your word, exalt your name in our hearts, be glorified in our midst, and have your way with us in the name of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Amen.